is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. California says it is getting serious about stopping gouging, price gouging at the pump. But will the effort run out of gas before it gets going? We'll go in-depth. Forcing homeless people into treatment, is that the best way to help them? New York City is trying it out. Will L.A.? Also, a tropical disease is now in the U.S. once again. We'll tell you which one and how it got here. But we start with California watching oil companies with their creation of something called the Division of Petroleum Market Oversight. Jamie Cord is president of Consumer Watchdog, which has called for action to deal with high gas prices. Jamie, thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Okay, it sounds impressive. Division of Petroleum <laughs> Market Oversight. I can see someone having a business card that says that on it, and I would probably be impressed if they handed it to me. Does it mean anything? Well, it does. In conjunction with all the information the state's going to be getting that will help it work better, it's going it's, it's envisioned like a Federal Trade Commission for the gasoline market. But uh, what really matters isn't just that they're going to have dedicated staff trained in investigating uh, for market manipulation. It's that we're going to get a lot of new information. Uh, the state is going to have to be notified any time a refinery goes down and when it's going to go back up. They are actually have uh, the ability to say no if they don't want to permit uh, refinery maintenance. We're going to get information about the commodities market where uh, we believe gas prices are manipulated in California. We're going to get information about exports, imports, production levels. And all that information is just a way of boxing the oil refiners in so that they cannot um, manipulate gas prices. And I'll tell you, we, look, we looked at the uh, data from just the last uh, two years. Last year, before we talked about the law, this year when we uh, talked about the law and enacted this anti-gouging law, and it has had a huge effect already. We see the average gap between California and U.S. gas prices last year was $1.36. This year, after we began debate and actually enacted a windfall profits penalty and this new division, uh, the average gap fell to $1.08 per gallon. So we saved about $0.28 cents per gallon if you're just looking at the gap between California and U.S. gas prices. And if you add that up on a six-month basis, that $0.28 cents per gallon added uh, saved us about $2 billion at the gas pump. So it has already had a deterrent effect, and the law just took effect yesterday. Now, the oil companies, as we all know, have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. Uh, they could spend a lot of money. How hard are they going to come after this? And uh, is it expected they're just going to you know, roll over and go, okay, that's a good idea. We'll play along. Well, the, the, um, they are already supplying information as of today uh, to the commission on a daily basis, some of it on a monthly basis. Uh, and, it, and I've been in seminars, and it looks like they are providing the information that's necessary to, to be, make this market transparent and prevent it from being manipulated. I don't think they really can do much to stop this division from going up to investigate. Um, but there is the price gouging penalty, this windfall profits cap. That has to be enacted, and they will fight that. Uh, it has to be. It's going to be enacted probably through a rulemaking. Doesn't have to be through a rulemaking, but it'd probably be a rulemaking. And basically, we would submit evidence to why there is a, a reasonable level of profit they should make, and above that, there should be a penalty, and the and we should take it back. And they'll submit evidence saying no. Uh, number one, the state doesn't have the authority to do this. Number two, there is no reasonable. We're not exceeding our reasonable level of profit. So they will fight us on the penalty. Uh, what we call the price gouging penalty, uh, and that will take months to develop, probably at least six months, maybe longer. 
So, uh, but, so, but, but, but I want information but, flowing that, that, that that's it's coming now. So. OK, but I want to make sure I, I understand this correctly, Jamie. So this division of petroleum market oversight, while it can collect data and I suppose make it public as a kind of shaming technique, mm-hmm. it has no at the moment teeth in terms of being able to actually impose a fine. Is that correct? Well, it has teeth in terms of subpoena power so it can get in for any information it wants. It has teeth and be able to um, to uh, bring uh, traditional uh, antitrust or collusion cases based on the information it finds. But in terms of this new price gouging penalty, it cannot bring a case because uh, profits are too high, because we haven't established what level it is at which we would say profits are excessive. But it does have it does have subpoena power. It does have the ability to bring a case based on collusive activity, antitrust activity under the law as we know it. And with the additional information, we may not even need that price gouging penalty uh, in place to, to have a case brought. But like I said, the oil refiners have been behaving much better ever since this law uh, was started to be debated this year and took effect. Um, and when we don't see that huge spread with U.S. gas prices we've seen before, at $1.08 per gallon, it was as low as 86 cents per gallon in the beginning of January. That's a far cry from being $2.40 mm. a gallon different from U.S. prices in October. So right. as long as they behave, they don't have anything to worry about. But the, the division does have some powers to bring cases under existing law, but not powers to bring cases under this price gouging penalty until that rule is created by the commission, which could take at least six months. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Jamie Court, president of uh, Consumer Watchdog. So the tank seems to be kind of half full. Yeah, half full. Yeah. Uh, you can get there, but uh, turn off the air conditioner. Yeah, but it's better than running on empty. That's true. Right now, though, New York City has a policy that allows some homeless people to be forced into hospitals for mental health treatment. There's been some success, too, in helping them find housing afterward. With us is Sarah Hunter, director of the RAND Center on Housing and Homelessness here in Los Angeles, and Alex Barnard, a sociologist at New York University. He has a book coming out soon called Conservatorship, Inside California's System of Coercion and Care for Mental Illness. Both of you, thanks for joining us. Alex, let let me begin with you. Uh, A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, namely when I was growing up in New York City, there was a time when there was such a thing as forced hospitalization for some people, Uh, mainly people who it was perceived to be either threats to themselves, to others, or who simply could not sufficiently take care of themselves. As the decades went by, that was phased out for a variety of reasons, among them civil rights uh, reasons, constitutional reasons, and also a shortage and the eventual closing of uh, many psychiatric uh, hospitals. What, if anything, is changing now in New York? Well, I want to offer, you know, thank you for having me. I want to give a quick correction, which is that, you know, involuntary hospitalization never went away in New York. It's true that the state closed many of its state run psychiatric hospital beds. There used to be, you know, 90,000 of them in the state. Um, But involuntary treatment has always been an option uh, in New York for people who are deemed a danger to themselves or others or unable to meet their basic needs. Um, And it's been happening to thousands of people per year. What has changed is, uh, in November 2022, the mayor put out a directive, you know, telling street outreach teams and the police 
um, to interpret a little bit more broadly the, the standard for involuntary hospitalization, which is somebody not able to meet their basic needs. Uh, and so what they've tried to do is, is convince them to, to use that a little bit more liberally um, to, to bring in some of the homeless, some homeless people that they think are in, in very bad shape. And they've added a couple of other um, provisions that are designed to keep those individuals in the hospital for a little bit longer um, and try and get them you know, to a more stable situation after their discharge. So, so it has changed to some degree. It, it has changed um, for a, for a small number of people, but I, I certainly wouldn't want anyone to think that you know before the mayor made this decision, you know, no one was being you know right. forcibly hospitalized in New York. Okay, all right, uh, Sarah, are we still? We're spending a lot of time with the symptom of homelessness and and some of the people who are homeless who have mental health problems. Uh, what are we doing, if anything, and and is it enough to uh, to stop this problem before it becomes a problem? Um, thanks for having me. Well, uh, Los Angeles has been doing a lot of work in this space for for a very long time. And and if you end up in the hospital, an L.A. County hospital or an L.A. County jail, and you are deemed having a serious health or serious chronic health condition, you are um, and experiencing homelessness, you are put on a pathway to housing. The issue is, is there's that long wait list to getting that housing. And so people spend nine months to two years on that long waiting list to actually access um, supportive housing or um, enhanced residential care. Um, and there is a program underway to, to put people on that pathway here in Los Angeles. But as we can all experience, the demand is higher than the resources for that Sarah, approach. Sarah, how how is the approach in LA, if it does, differ from that in New York City? Well, I can't really speak to what's going on in New York City um, because I haven't done work there. But it, we have been doing this approach. It's been a voluntary approach for a very long time. Um, as I say, that the need outweigh, you know, the demand outweighs the need. Um, the housing resources that we have. Um, what What is new is uh, Governor Newsom has put into place this new plan, Air Courts, that will allow more leeway um, for um, what we might, quote unquote, call coerced treatment. So, Alex, I'm, I'm curious then. It, it, that seems to be the theme both in New York City and what Sarah is just saying here in, in California. Not so much that, as you said before, that there hasn't been in the past, uh, you know, so-called, and I hate the term, but I guess for lack of a better one, forced hospitalization, but that the parameters, uh, because of societal needs, I suppose, are being expanded for who would qualify. Is that is that a fair characterization? That is right. And I think, you know, it's important to to recognize that you know for the vast majority of homeless people you know the solution to homelessness is is housing with voluntary support so we're really talking about you know a small group of chronically homeless people living with really serious mental disorders who are potentially you know refusing treatment that we really think they need and for that sort of subset of individuals you know some sort of you know you can call it forced or involuntary or coerced but some sort of you know sort of obligate obligatory treatment has has really sort of risen to the top of the agenda for people like governor newsom mayor adams um in in new york and also the mayor of portland has been talking about it something you're seeing in a lot of you know cities and states with a, a large number of unhoused folks 
All right, I want to thank our guest, Alex Barnard, the sociologist at New York University. Also, Sarah Hunter, director of the RAND Center on Housing and Homelessness in Los Angeles. So a little bit later in the show, if you are planning on staying mm-hmm. right here right. in L.A., uh, we're going to talk to you, all of you about some things and places perhaps that you could go. So in essence, the segment is for people who are going nowhere. If for people who are too cheap to fly. There you go. Okay. Uh, right now, there's a brutal heat dome burning over Texas and nearby parts of the U.S. That means sweltering temperatures. That creates some huge problems other than just making people uncomfortable. Austin York is a reporter for KRLD in Dallas. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. How hot are we talking? Ooh, we're talking about 102 today. Uh, right now, but the heat index, obviously, that's the problem. Uh, that's going to feel around 115 today. Uh, last week, it was the brutal heat and the crippling uh, humidity, which Houston kind of deals with a little bit, uh, but not North Texas, Central Texas, a little bit more humid than what you guys would be used to. But here, even in North Texas, it was unbearable. So it felt uh, really muggy outside. And then when you talk uh, about like 98, 97 degree temperatures, and then you add that humidity this week, we got triple digit temperatures and and uh, the heat index is just going to, uh, it makes it feel unbearable at times. So how are people dealing with it? And perhaps more importantly, how's the power grid dealing with it? Well, in Texas, we are used to this, but we're not used to it until probably August. So we complain and moan, but really August is when when it usually gets here. It's gotten here a lot earlier this year. So people are having to just take what they would do in August and and kind of, I guess, start a little earlier, stay inside a lot more. The power grid is holding. We we ERCOT, that's the one that is... uh, powering us up here. They say right now they've got enough power generation uh, to last. What they are doing right now is asking everyone to conserve. They're not uh, making any kind of conservation requests, but they're saying, look, in the peak power times at around two to eight at night, maybe don't wash the clothes, turn the AC up just a bit if you can to help conserve because we need every little bit we can get. Now, as I understand it, uh, there was supposed to be some kind of rule regulation law that uh, anybody working outside, especially in temperatures like this, was supposed to get some mandatory breaks to drink water, uh, rehydrate themselves. But now that's not going to happen? Well, that depends on on what particular company you're talking about. And it's also usually cities were doing this. Uh, Private companies are pretty much doing this on their own, saying, hey, you've got to take a break in, in an hour or so. Uh, every 15, 20 minutes, you got to stop, drink some water and stuff. And when you see people out working outside that are required there, especially AC guys or people doing the lawns and stuff that still have to be manicured and, and, and done, they are taking all kinds of breaks. They've got those long sleeves on. They've got the the big hats and everything. But yes, there are certain cities that uh, because of different uh, rules and regulations, and it really goes to each city to city uh, to one uh, to really decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Yeah, the mandatory breaks aren't necessarily mandatory. But again, private companies, most people are doing it. And I think most people are being smart about it on their own. All right. Thank you so much. Austin York, reporter for KRLD in Dallas, where they're suffering in that uh, heat dome. And Charles, a little upset about something. 
You are? I am. Yeah, and go I, ahead. And I want to get it off my chest before we go too much sure. further in the no, show. But no, go, by all means. We all had a meeting earlier. Just yes, we did. Just before we went on the yes. air. As we do once a week or so. Yes, we do. And we're all sitting in there and everybody's talking back and forth. We're exchanging ideas and what have you. Right. And apparently the whole time yes. I had this huge red thing on my forehead. Did you? And no one said, well, I know that you won't notice because you don't, you don't look I, at I, me. I, I noticed nothing. Yeah, you make eye contact uh no, no one. No one. Uh, but no other one. people were looking right at me, and yeah. no one said anything wow. about this big red thing. And you know what it was? No, what was My it? wife kissed me before I came to work today on the forehead with her lipstick. Oh. And it was all over. It looked like I had been wounded. And and that is the story you're going to tell your that wife? That is the story I'm going to tell my wife. <laughs> and uh, no one said anything about the big, giant head wound I had on my forehead. <laughs> the lipstick mark on but your it was, forehead. It was just lipstick. Anyway. Okay. So it's off my chest. Now I feel better. <laughs> You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. When you think of malaria, generally you've got this image of the jungle or some kind of tropical setting. Yeah, and, and in, in fact, a few years ago, uh, before I went on a trip to uh, Southeast Asia, uh, I did talk to my doctor about, you know, the possibilities mm-hmm. of, of possibility of getting malaria. But who would have thought uh, in 2023 that you may have to give it some thought if you're going to... Florida, or Texas. Wow. Dr. Andrea Berry specializes in malaria immunology with the University of Maryland School of Medicine Center for Vaccine Development and Global Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as I just said, I, I wouldn't think of Florida or Texas as being places where I might have to have even a small concern about contracting malaria, but that seems to have happened to a couple of people, yes? Yes, um, there have been four cases in uh, in uh, Florida and a case in Texas, and so there have been local cases. But just as you said, there have been people who get malaria when they travel um, or from the places where malaria is endemic, and they come into the United States with malaria. So that has been going on even before these five cases that we're talking about today. But this is different because, to be clear, these people did not get it outside the U.S., right? That is correct. And so what has happened is that there is somebody with malaria in their proximity, and then a mosquito bites that infected person and then bites the person who never had a travel history. And that's how those people got malaria infections. And what is uh, malaria like when you get it? What are the symptoms? So uncomplicated malaria, um, a person has fever, body aches, headache. They can have some nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. They feel like they have a really bad flu. Um, Untreated malaria can progress to people getting jaundice, um, liver failure, kidney failure, um, seizures, altered mental status, coma, and death. So so it can be pretty serious if it's untreated. Is malaria, uh, is it bacterial? Is it a parasite? What is it? It's a parasite, so it's a single-celled organism, but it lives in both people and in mosquitoes. And once you get it, does that parasite, whether you have symptoms or not, stay with you for the rest of your life? So there are five species that cause malaria in people, and two of those five species can 
change into a liver form uh, that can live in the liver and then relapse and keep coming out. Um, so that's relapsing malaria. However, there is a medication to eliminate that relapsing form of the parasite. So all species of malaria that occur in humans can be eliminated from human with the proper treatment. Best ways to protect yourself. Mosquito avoidance, and mosquito avoidance is um, good for protecting yourself against other viruses that mosquitoes carry, um, and so that would be wearing mosquito repellent, um, long pants, long sleeves if possible, and then eliminating standing water around your home and, you know, in your area, um, and in some cases, like when there is concern about mosquito-borne diseases, there's more um, insecticide spraying and other interventions that are made. But this is the first time we've had cases uh, of people who have gotten malaria who have not traveled out of the U.S. in like, I think, 20 years or something like that, right? Right. Um, yeah, I did. I did take a look at this. In 2008 was the last time there were some cases in Palm Beach, Florida. So my, my question then is, is this something that just naturally happens for unknown reasons periodically or has something changed? I think that it's too soon to know, and maybe it depends on how many cases, but in general, the way that I think about it is that um, it is an infection that occurs in both people and in mosquitoes. And so both the people and the mosquitoes are essential, otherwise it does not propagate and transmit. Um, so therefore, either there are more people with malaria and therefore more chances that a mosquito is biting somebody with malaria, um, or the mosquitoes are something different. There are more of them, they're biting more often, you know, something like that, or both is occurring, or it's something random, like you said. Uh, there is a vaccine for malaria, yes? Yes, there is one vaccine that has been approved by the World Health Organization, but it's approved for children living in highly malarious areas um, of um, high malaria transmission. So people, and a lot uh, of other vaccines people here wouldn't, wouldn't be getting that, right? No. So this vaccine would not be available to people in the United States. Wow. Oh, uh, it's, it's interesting that you get these things that that you think uh, have either disappeared or are not a problem back, in, yeah. in the U.S., and then they they come back, uh, you know, uh, would there be a reason uh, to suspect that this is going to spread to other states other than just Florida and Texas? Right now, I'm not concerned that would happen. Uh, malaria can spread, and it was uh, endemic to the southeastern part of the United States up until 1951, when with intentional malaria control, it was eliminated from the United States as far as local transmission. Um, so it could come back. Uh, but I think that we have public health measures in place to detect cases and to decrease mosquitoes and decrease mosquito to human transmission. So I'm optimistic that it could be controlled. All right. That's Dr. Andrea Berry at the University of Maryland School of Medicine Center for Vaccine Development. Well, July 4th is coming up. Not a surprise. It happens every year. <laughs> but lots, lots of people are going to be heading out of town, but lots more Will not. And that's because travel can be a hassle, especially right now. So a lot of people are going to opt to stay here in Southern California. And uh, I'm told, I'm informed, sources say there is no shortage of things to do and places to go for the holiday and the weekend leading up to it. Kenneth Lipman is CEO of Another Side of Los Angeles Tours. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. How you guys doing? We're doing great. So for people who uh, want to go nowhere, what can they do? 
a lot of the times that's the best thing to do in LA for sure, <laughs> but it's going to be a hot weekend. So my number one free recommendation is going to one of our beautiful beaches. Winter ended when June gloom stopped last week. So I'd say the number one recommendation is soak up some rays. It's good for your depression. It's also good for your complexion. Okay, so that's if, uh, like, Rob, you're cheap and you don't want to spend any money, uh, so you go to a beach. Uh, Suppose you're willing to spend some change. Uh, What can you do without having to spend five hours on the 405 uh, and certainly (laughs) without having to go to the airport and flying out? Well, what's great is that a lot of our communities have really wonderful farmer's markets. So I wanted to recommend going out to the farmer's market because we have them all across the city. And basically, it's a great opportunity to sample some fresh produce, gets you out of Costco, gets you out of Vons, and uh, you might find some really great local treats that you can serve up at your family's barbecue for July 4th. What are some kind of secret, kind of out of the way places and things you can do in Southern California? Of course, uh, when I ask you that, I realize that once you say it, it won't be so secret or out of the way anymore. (laughs) Well, one of my favorite places to go visit uh, that's kind of a little bit out of the way, it takes us out of the concrete jungle, but it's still considered the L.A. area, is the Descanso Gardens. And uh, I think a lot of us need to sometimes get back connected to that Mother Nature that we don't get to enjoy so much. So visiting the Descanso Gardens in La Cañada Flint Ridge is a great way to uh, see some beautiful gardens, hike through the forest, and enjoy some really peaceful surroundings. I know uh, a lot of people, if they have time off, might be inclined to go to a museum, but would museums be closed on July 4th? Uh, For the most part, most of the museums are actually open, but I do recommend going to their individual website to check to see whether or not the museum that you're interested in going to is open. One of my favorites is the Peterson Auto Museum, and they currently have a Porsche exhibit, which is uh, over 40 vehicles. And it's, you know, just a part of their huge collection of uh, classic cars and a great opportunity to learn about the history of automobiles. And uh, what about Star Trek fans going to uh, Vasquez Rocks? Is that too far out of the way? I mean, that's up to each and every individual person, whether or not they want to schlep that far out there. Um, But we have plenty of different like festivals and things to check out. One of my favorite websites to to check out local uh, happenings this on the weekends and actually during the week is uh, WeLikeLA.com. You can find a lot of cool uh, events that are maybe not things that will come to the top of the mind. And uh, you can dig in there and maybe find some really cool stuff that's off the beaten path. Now, the reason I mentioned Vasquez Rocks, explain for the non-Star Trek fans, uh, there were some classic episodes. They went back to that location several times. It represented some alien planet, but you always saw that same outcropping of rock. You know, can't you just beam yourself there? You know, we check into that. Yeah, I think you want to be careful if you're going into any rock outcroppings. Uh, just uh, you might want to bring a flashlight, and uh, you know, it is LA. You never know what you'll find in there. So I'm I'm curious, uh, Kenneth, because you are, as we said, CEO of another side of Los Angeles Tours. If you're not going out of town, what are you doing for July Fourth? 
Well, I mean, I'm hosting guests that are coming from all over it. Half of our guests are actually people that are doing staycation. So we offer a variety of tours. We're famous for Segway tours and e-bike tours and city tours. And believe it or not, the locals really do enjoy checking out their own city. Uh, Char- while you're on the line with us, I want to ask Charles, uh, would you be uh, amenable to, if they make a KNX kind of a tourist destination, would you like tourists coming through and watching us do what we do? Oh, I mean, people coming here? Yeah, and, 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 seeing, and, and gawking at us like we're animals in a zoo. And, and seeing how the food is made in yeah, the kitchen? Yeah, how the sausage is made. Oh, you never want to do that. No, you don't do that. No, you what do you, what do you think, <laughs> Kenneth? Well, I think that uh, definitely your fans would love to come see you. So if you do want to, you know, possibly put out there like maybe eight or day. So it's not like a, uh, you know, sausage fest every day. Yeah. That would be great. yeah. Come come up on July 4th and see Rob. I'll be out of town. Yeah, I, I, I think I think I'm off that day, too. So you'll be barbecuing your own. Sausage. Yeah, there you go. Okay. All right, Wonderful. Kenneth uh, Livin, uh, CEO of Another Side of Los Angeles Tours. Thank you so much. So, yeah, plenty of things to do in Southern California because, you know, a lot of people come in to Southern California when they're yeah. trying to get out of their towns. Hey, by the way, you know that uh, red mark you had on your forehead? Yes, before it's the gone. red mark. It's gone now. It is gone because yeah, they wiped it off. No, I don't it was see it lipstick. now. It's, it's, it's totally gone. And nobody said anything. Because, you know. We didn't want to be embarrassed for you. You know, is this why when you see somebody with their, you know, they they forgot to zip up their zipper, you don't say anything? Well, it depends who it is. What if it's your boss? Uh, no, I think it would be more interesting to just <laughs> just let it unfold and see let what it, happens. Let it go. <laughs> let Somebody it go. else will mention it. Let it go. <laughs> Not my business. I'm going to walk away now slowly. Uh, that's it for KNX In-Depth today. Uh, we'll do it again tomorrow at 1 p.m.